Welcome to the Indian Ocean World Podcast. Welcome to the Indian Ocean World Podcast. My name is Dr. Philip Gooding. I'm a postdoctoral fellow at the Indian Ocean World Center, McGill University, and the current associate editor of the Journal of Indian Ocean World Studies, or JIWS. And as with the last edition of the Indian Ocean World Podcast, it is partly in my capacity as the associate editor of the JIWS that it is my pleasure to welcome our guest for this podcast, Professor Hassan Karar, who published an article in our most recent issue, which can be found on the JIWS website. Professor Karar is Associate Professor and the Department Chair of the Department of Humanities and Social Sciences at the Lahore University of Management Sciences in Lahore, Pakistan. He has a PhD in East Asian Studies from McGill University, and he specializes in modern Chinese and Central Asian history and political economy. His current research on new economic configurations in the greater Central Asian region, which he takes into include Western China and the Fragoran Mountain region of Northern Pakistan. Within this discursive space, Hassan explores bazaar trade and bazaar networks, new Silk Roads and trade corridors, commercial relations and emerging spatial configurations. Yet more broadly, his work engages with informality, capitalism and globalization across this region. He is also interested in Asian borderlands and high mountain regions, environmental history and political ecology, foreign relations and 20th century, 20th century international history. Furthermore, he is interested in the tension between development, apologies, I'm gonna start that bit again. Furthermore, he is interested in the tension between developmentalist imaginaries, ecological degradation and precarity in the Indus Delta region of Southern Pakistan, and this latter interest formed the basis for his recent publication in the JOWS, entitled The Indus Delta Between Past and Future, Precarious Livelihoods and Neoliberal Imaginaries in a Parched Coastal Belt, which we are going to discuss in this podcast. Professor Karat, thank you very much for agreeing to discuss your research with me. Um, to start off, can you simply introduce your article? Um, how did you break down temporal silos between past and future? What are the conflicts between livelihoods and neoliberal imaginaries? And how do these concepts help you to discuss your case study in the Indus River Delta? Uh, thank you, Philip. First of all, uh, sort of, I deeply appreciate uh, the, the uh, uh, I deeply appreciate uh, being able to discuss this article and uh, uh, sort of elaborating this for a for a for a wider audience. Um, the the the, the idea for the article emerged uh, four or five years ago. And as you mentioned in your introduction, uh, by training, the Indian Ocean world is actually quite far removed from what I do uh, in terms of my own research and my own teaching. Uh, I'm a specialist of China, of contemporary Central Asia. But about four or five years ago, uh, I was struck by a news story in which the leadership had made an announcement, the leadership of the country of Pakistan had made an announcement uh, in which they said that they were going to build a coastal city in the Indus Delta. And uh, this coastal city was going to be called Zulfiqarabad. And a little bit later, we can talk about the significance of the name. And uh, Zulfiqarabad would purportedly be a new Shenzhen. And as someone who's interested in uh, developmentalist ideas and as someone who's a China specialist, uh, the reference to Shenzhen really, it, it, it caught my attention and, and you know, I felt that that was something that was, that was worth exploring. Um, and then when I looked into this story a little bit more, uh, I realized that uh, here was a 
part of southern Sindh. Sindh is a southern province of Pakistan. Um, and ostensibly, uh, this was an uninhabited area, uninhabited at least as far as the presence of large urban settlements are concerned, even though it does have a population of about 300,000. And here you had these magnificent development imaginaries which were being imposed upon this vast tract of land, which otherwise hadn't seen urban settlements of any type. So that's, that's the first thing that caught my attention. Uh, and that's, that's how I became interested in this area uh, about four or five years ago. Now, in order to elaborate this a little bit further, I think it's important to imagine the geography of Pakistan. Pakistan runs, it's a diagonal country, if you may. It, it sort of you know, runs from, let's say, the Northeast down to the Southwest. And sort of through the country, you have the Indus River uh, and its tributaries flowing. Uh, the part of Pakistan that I'm referring to, uh, this is Sindh, this is Southern Pakistan, and purportedly you have the Indus River then emptying out into what in Pakistan we describe as the Arabian Sea, which can otherwise be described as the Indian Ocean. Uh, so that's that's the that's the place where this is where this is located. Now there's many layers to the story, uh, but one of the very interesting aspects of the story is that this place, where a magnificent port city was supposed to be built, uh, this has seen ecological degradation, and this ecological degradation is not recent, but a slow ecological degradation as a result of upriver hydrology and the Indus has been underway uh, for the last century or thereabouts. Uh, along with that, we have encroachment by the sea, we have desertification, we have salination of land. Um, and essentially what you have is a population that is increasingly precarious. They've lost access to traditional livelihoods. Many of them are being displaced. So, it's an interesting story in that sense. Uh, it's a story of state-led development, not just recent, but in fact, spread out over a century. It's a story of ecological degradation. It's a story of forced out migration. And then on top of that, we have these fantastical imaginaries which are being imposed upon the area. And one of the arguments that I make in this paper is that they're talking about connectivity. So there's this obsession with connectivity that we're going to build a port and it's going to be, it's going to be connected with other Asian ports. So ports really fire up the imagination of technocratic planners. And it, that's been the case now for the last 25 years in this country. So this paper was an attempt to step outside of my region of specialization, my area of expertise and figure out what's going on here. Wonderful. I suppose thinking about this in a wider context then, because as you say, you only just came into this region from another part of, from Asia in terms of your speciality. Um, perhaps maybe you could do some kind of comparison. How much does um, your, this case study uh, on the Indus Delta stand out? Um, I suppose from the wider region, from the wider Asia region, um, because to my mind at least, and I, I'm speaking here as a historian, um, the Indus Delta, centered on, which is linked on this course to the Indus River, I think has a certain place in collective memories of the past. Um, I think a singular prestige associated with the historic Indus Valley, Indus Valley civilizations. Um, so I think it kind of stands out in a singular sense in that, in a long-term historical collective memory. But 
Your case study, I think, draws on scholarly themes that um, transcend larger areas, particularly in the Indian Ocean world, about um, environmental degradation, um, ecological degradation, um, about vulnerability to global warming as well. And therefore, does this case study, your case study here, is this um, very much um, a singular case study where you see patterns that are very much located only within this Delta region? Or is this part of a um, broader story um, that you can think about um, these broader scholarly themes of degradation and environmental challenges in the last 100 to 150 years? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's a great question. And, and you know, I'll just add to that. Uh, and perhaps this is something that I should say, I should say first. And this is, this is very, very recent thinking. I mean, this is uh, sort of what I'm about to say is really coming out of a talk that I gave uh, a few weeks ago. And I was looking at um, British colonial documents from the 1930s, the 1940s, and these colonial documents are being produced, they are accounts by uh, colonial officials, British colonial officials who are stationed in the Karakoram Mountains in North, what is now North Pakistan. So really right on the border with Western China, with Central Asia. And they're describing the movement of pilgrims from Western China, from Central Asia into the Karakoram Mountains. So once again, the region that is now North Pakistan. And then these pilgrims, they're hajis, so they're going to Mecca for Hajj. They would travel sort of pretty much through what is now Pakistan. They would go to Karachi, and then from there, they would sail to Mecca. Now, what's I think interesting about this is that in this example, we have the Karakoram Mountains and we have Central Asia, which could arguably be said to be part of the Indian Ocean world. Uh, people are following, following routes which connect um, sort of a region that we now understand as Central Asia with another region which we as academic specialists would describe as the Indian Ocean world. So, so there's, 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 a, there's an opportunity here, I think, to really rethink and redefine regions and perhaps go back in history and sort of consider the fact that, well, sort of our academic specializations uh, are really constricting the way in which people moved and the way in which connectivity was functioning in the past. So that's, yeah, I think that's, that's, that's perhaps a fruitful line of inquiry. And, you know, I've only really just started thinking about this and, you know, whether one does anything with this really depends on how rich the archive is and how, what one can find in the archive. But the other question that, but coming back to the sort of main thrust of your question, the question of ecological degradation. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think that theme is a very important one. And I, I think, if, if one can expand that a little bit, uh, I would tie it up with uh, infrastructure, with ideas of development. So I think what's one of the things that's really interesting about this story for me, and this, this ended up really being, being the backbone, the spine of the paper, is that a lot of the degradation that we see today has its roots in late 19th century hydrology, uh, canal building, uh, in the Punjab, uh, which is the central part of Pakistan. So that would be upriver from Sindh, the region where this paper is focused. Uh, and uh, a lot of dam construction in Pakistan in the 1950s and the 1960s. Upriver hydrology, colonial hydrology is very much uh, an opportunity that the British are seizing to make an area that's a wasteland productive and to assert patronage to uh, people who are deemed to be compradors 
or who are who are imagined to be computers. I'm not sure they were actually being called computers at that point in time. And of course, hydrology in the 1950s, the 1960s, I mean, that was very much a Cold War project. Uh, Cold War project in the sense that uh, sort of that was to, to a large extent, the, the technocratic expertise at that point in time, to a large extent, the funding, it was coming from, from the Western world. So it's a much longer story. And what we then end up seeing is that the ecological degradation that we're faced with today has its roots in the late 19th century, in the mid 20th century. So there's a much longer history over here. And if one wants to think comparatively, if one wants to think about other parts of the world, I think those are the sort of historical threads that would be really interesting to unravel. Um, I think what's happened in the last 25 years is interesting. I think as we get closer to the present, we can really start uh, identifying specific moments, the role that key individuals played. But uh, the longer story for me of uh, ecological degradation, loss of livelihood, uh, all processes that are part and parcel of state building, uh, whether it's the colonial state or the post-colonial state, or I suppose what one could after the 1980s somewhat loosely describe as the neoliberal state. You know, this is, this is all, uh, this is all adding up over a span of about 125 years. And you see it very, very starkly in the Indus Delta region. You've touched on something there, which I really enjoyed about your article, in fact. Um, and this is the way you're looking at current and future concerns in the context of a long historical trajectory. Um, to do this, um, I think you will agree with me that your um, approach was highly interdisciplinary. Um, you use historical works, um, to frame a long-term historical context, and but you also rely on your own field research and interviews. I just wondered, could you just speak to your um, training and methodologies here, um, and how you develop this kind of interdisciplinary approach, and what kind of its broad implications can be um, moving forwards? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, thanks. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good question, and it's one that's very. Uh, I, I think it's 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 something that I I, I think about quite a bit, and and. My work is, is, a, is, a, is a mishmash of methodologies. And I don't, you know, I say that somewhat sheepishly because, you know, I understand that sort of, in, <laughs> that, that disciplines have, have very, very particular requirements about how one is supposed to do things. And, and you know, I find myself increasingly uh, a bit of a vagabond uh, methodologically when it, when it comes to pursuing uh, topics that I find, that I find interesting. Um, some of it is a, is a reflection of the fact that I have training in history and I have training in area studies. So, so, so I, 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 I draw from, from methodologies and, and two overlapping, but at the same time, distinct fields within the, within the humanities and, and, and social sciences. Um, I, 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 I like to think chronologically, uh, but it's always interesting for me to bring the story up to the present. And as someone who has degrees in history, uh, I do find that there is utility in speaking to people uh, who can tell us something about the past. So in other words, while, while, while I, like to, I like to start thinking as a historian, I, I really want to bring the story up until the present moment. And the reason why I want to bring the story up until the present moment, the reason why I want to link it to the present is because Oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes, and especially for a paper like this, it was that's where the that's where the inspiration came from. It, it, it started with something contemporary, uh, and then I started working backwards. Uh, 
Now, mind you, I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not advocating that all of us should be doing this sort of history, but I think in this particular case, um, it, it works out very nicely. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, to me at least, it's a very logical timeline. There's a very clear starting point, and at least for now, there's a reasonably clear pausing point, if not an end point. The story, of course, continues. Uh, let's see what happens next. Well, let's uh, think about that then. Um, and I'm going to ask you to speculate, actually, um, because you draw this long-term context, and then you also bring it from the past to the present, but then you also go into the future. Um, and in your article, you document over the course of, um, you document a chronology of around 100 to 150 years about how lives have changed dramatically. If you can talk about a dramatic change in 100 to 150 years. Um, and those changes have been for the, for, for livelihoods have been largely for the worse. Um, this comes out in the oral testimonies you refer to uh, and is supported by the documentary record. Um, what do you think is going to happen in the future? Um, will there be new ways? You, you know, you know one, one of the features of, of the livelihoods you document were the, that they seem to be incredibly adaptable and changing, but also that there's increasing precarity each adapt adaptation that's being made. Are there new ways to adapt? Will there be new ways to adapt? Um, and again, if you'll permit me this, I think this is quite a speculative question and uh, I'll, I'll allow you a, 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 a lot of leeway to, uh, to uh, sure, sure, make sure. qualified okay. remarks. No, no, that's, 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 that's all good. Well, let's, let's, let's first, uh, let's, we can talk about what we know. So what we know is that the Indus Delta region, uh, it used to be fertile. Uh, it, um, it used to be an area where people were engaging in agricultural activity, and that was the primary vocation over there. And we know that as a result of the decrease in water in the Indus River, uh, sort of less and less people are engaging in traditional agricultural activity. Uh, we know that people have started uh, moving to the cities. Uh, they primarily moved to a peri-urban area on the outskirts of Karachi, that's called Ibrahim Hadri. Uh, some of them have been pushed into the informal fishing sector, but that doesn't pay very well. So there's a very clear trajectory uh, which we can map out over the last one or two generations of loss of agricultural land, loss of agriculture as a vocation, and people being pushed into vocations that were always secondary uh, in the past. So, so one tends to assume that just because people live on the coast, they would be fisher folk, but that's sort of historically not been the case. Um, likewise, one tends to assume that just because there's a possibility of migrating to a large city three hours away, people would naturally assume, well, would want to do that. That has happened in the past, but that wasn't what people were seeking to do from the very outset. They wanted to live in, the, in this Delta region. They wanted to uh, build the land, but increasingly those possibilities, those traditional vocations uh, are not, are not really viable for the people anymore. And the people who do remain uh, sort of are living in an extremely precarious, uh, are living in extremely precarious circumstances. Uh, the biggest issue I think over there is the fact that there isn't any potable water. Uh, and for me going there, it was, it was shocking to see that there are stagnant pools of water. Uh, and those stagnant pools of water are for human consumption. Uh, they keep some livestock over there. So, so um, goats are herded uh, because goats can live off of the dried shrubs that you see here and there. The same water is used, the same stagnant pools of water are used for the animals. 
And uh, finally, if there's anything left over, then they might use that water to irrigate a small vegetable patch or a small, a small tract of land. So that is something that, that we know. So in terms of what's going to happen next, um, my own sense is that uh, just as for the last 25 years, we've been hearing talks about a port city being built, these conversations will continue. I don't think a fantastical port city is going to be built over there. Having said that, I do think that it is going to create an opportunity for land speculation, for land grabbing. Uh, and that's something that we're seeing in coastal areas in other parts of, uh, in other parts of Pakistan as well. Uh, so, so I think that's, that's the real danger, uh, that, that the land will be, what, what land is left uh, and whatever livelihood people will be able to eat from the land that's going to become more and more difficult. And sort of as a, as a small sort of addendum to the story, uh, what's, what's been happening in Pakistan recently is that there's been a massive influx of investment from, from China under the Belt and Road Initiative. You know, something like $60 billion have been pledged. And increasingly, uh, local politicians, Pakistani <laughs> policymakers, will we'll, you know, try and sell this as part of the China-Pakistan economic corridor. So there's going to be an attempt on the part of state authorities to pitch this to the Chinese as well, hoping to get some sort of financing for, for development in the Indus Delta region. Um, I don't necessarily see that happening anytime soon. Okay, that's very interesting. Um, before I give you, um, let's make this the penultimate question in that case. I just wanted you to maybe elaborate a little bit on your experience of your fieldwork. Um, you, you noted, you, we've noted quite from the outset that this is kind of outside your normal region of study. Um, but you've clearly done a lot of work here, like, um, not just because this is, a, is an excellent article, um, but also because your, your, your fieldwork took place over the course of three years. Um, how did you, so I've got two questions here, um, two sub questions. Um, how did you come to do this on, on, is one question. And the other one, um, I was wanted to know how willing people were to discuss um, current situation, current and past situations with you were. Um, because you note, in, you note in the article uh, that um, everyone is political. Uh, and this is a natural response to precarity. Um, and given this politicization, I wondered if people were reticent or eager um, to, um, to talk to you, if anonymity was something that, that, that people insisted on. Um, I know you grant anonymity throughout, which is for obvious reasons. Um, and I wondered if there are dangers about talking about these issues um, to, to, to an academic, for example. So the... the the, the, a lot of the fieldwork was done in um, Ibrahim Hadri, which is a peri-urban area outside Karachi, where a lot of the people who originally lived in the Indus Delta region uh, have now come and settled. And there was uh, one trip uh, to, to the Indus Delta region itself. So, so as I mentioned, I mean, I, you know, as I as I feel, I should I should underscore. I mean, this is this is exploratory. I mean, this is really just me me following through on ideas that that I find interesting and seeing how well I can I can I can fit them uh, I can fit them together. Um, in terms of people's willingness to speak with me, I found them 
yeah, I mean, I, I found that people were, were happy to talk. I found that people were happy to draw attention to the, the ecological changes in the Indus Delta region. I would say overall, they're more interested in talking about the environment and ecology. Uh, and they're more interested in talking about the environment and ecology because that is something tangible. Uh, they're seeing the loss of land, they're seeing the loss of mangroves, they're seeing that the artificial mangroves that are being planted are, are, are uh, not having the desired results. That becomes something much, much easier to talk about. Uh, plans concerning the large scale, uh, the large scale development that's being proposed for the area, these are these are abstractions, uh, and in in people's minds as well, uh, they're they're still fairly distant. Uh, they're, they're they're still um, they're, 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 there's I don't know if cynical is the right word to use, but um, people don't people don't take those plans too seriously. But instead, what they see them as is is an opportunity to to to, to grab land. Uh, and, and since this article was published, uh, there's been two other attempts in the coastal areas to similarly grab land. There's a small island off the coast of Karachi where the provincial government said that they were going to build a mega city and this time it was being depicted as the new Dubai in the United Arab Emirates. And more recently, about three weeks ago, uh, we, we, we heard another proposal whereby they were going to uh, they were going to demolish uh, a settlement, a coastal settlement within the city of Karachi, where about half a million people live at this point in time. And they, 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 were, they were again going to build a, a fantastical network hub and the, 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 the blueprints were drawn with skyscrapers and whatnot. So people, people are averse to that. Um, having said that, between the two, between a critique of the development imaginary and uh, talking about ecological changes, the ecological changes are a little more tangible. That's something that they can point to. Uh, and I think they feel they can get more traction on that. Uh, and that, that, I think, generates more interest. So when the Indus Delta is written about in the newspapers, and to be fair, there, it, 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 has been, it has been discussed in the Pakistani press, They'll talk about the fact that encroaching seawater has uh, has 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 sort of uh, swallowed large tracts of land, or or salination has made uh, land um, uh, unusable for agriculture, or the fact that there is no water in the Indus River. The political stuff, less so. Having said that, yes, I mean absolutely, I do I do mention in the paper that everyone is political, and it's a politicization that comes of living in that degraded environment and the dehumanization that's that's part and parcel of it. As far as anonymizing sources is concerned, uh, I've thought about that. A part of that is 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 instinct. I mean I I, I otherwise write on, on 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 Central Asia where one is working uh, in a different type of political climate and, and the assumption is that unless one is very very certain that uh, publishing's People's name will not will not harm them. Then 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 one shouldn't publish uh, people's names. Um, I don't want to give the impression that this is uh, it's 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 an area that's fraught with conflict. I think there are contestations over land, uh, but it's not a conflict-prone area. Having said that, uh, 
as an academic, as someone who teaches at an elite university, I have, I have a lot more power than the people that I'm speaking with. Uh, and, and the people that I'm speaking with are very often individuals who have to keep engaging at the local level. They have to keep engaging with uh, local administrators. They have to engage with the police. They have to engage with local contractors. So, so for them, there's a lot more at stake as opposed to someone like myself. And for that reason, I figured that it's just much safer to, to, to anonymize, yeah, anonymize the individuals and, 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 and not sort of make a clear link um, to, to people that I've been speaking to. Excellent. Actually, if, if you could permit me, I want to follow up on one, one aspect of your, of your answer there. Um, you, or, or a couple of your answers, actually. You seem quite skeptical um, that Zul for Kirabad will come to fruition. Um, and it seems like your interviewees seem quite skeptical that it will come to fruition. And I'm going to basically um, follow up on that. What is the purpose of making these plans? If, the, if, if it looks quite unlikely, is it simply to drive up the price of land to create more investment? In it, for example, is it? Does it look good to outsiders? Uh, what, what is? What are the purpose of these plans? So, yeah, that's that's an excellent question, and I think there's one of three things going on. One is that absolutely there is there is land speculation, uh, and there is uh, you can, and and this is something that that we're we're seeing in different parts of Pakistan wherever large scale development projects are happening. So so you initiate a large scale development project. And all of a sudden, property prices start going up. And in, in Balochistan province, which is to the west of Sindh, uh, there's a port city that was developed recently. It used to be a fishing village, and, but, but it was recently developed. And um, it's, it's called Gabadar. And, and, and it's, 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 it's been in the news because the Chinese um, sort of a, a government financed the development of Gavadar Port. Now that only happened, that started happening recently. That started happening, I think in 2013, but plans for the development of the Gavadar Port have been around since the turn of the century. And it was in fact Karachi property developers who were trying to goad the government to develop Gavadar Port. And the reason why Karachi property developers wanted to see the sport develop is so that the price of land would go up. They could go and sort of take large tracts of land, capture large tracts of land. This is communal land. This is village land. This is land where people didn't have documentation proving that the land belonged to them. So you can imagine it as something of, of a land grab. So I think the land angle is uh, an important one uh, as far as these mega development projects uh, are concerned. Another reason why we keep hearing about plans for mega development in the Indus Delta region is because it's politically very, very crafty to do so. So, so you want to, you want to, you want to, as a, as a, as a politician, and especially as what in Pakistan you would describe as a constituent politician, you want to show that you're doing something for your constituents. Uh, so you're playing to the galley in that sense. Um, and it makes for it, it makes for good political showmanship, uh, and I think that is something that politicians from time to time will uh, draw traction from. And finally, you know, and, and you know, this is you know now now let's let's take these discourses at their face value. Finally, you know, at some level, 
there is technocratic thinking that this is a good idea. This is something that we ought to do. So at some level, sort of maybe sort of sort of deep in the corners, sort of distant, but at some level, people are thinking that, yeah, I mean, building a port city is a good idea. Networking with Dubai is a good idea. Um, there's a there's a longer history over here. Um, uh, there's a longer almost fetishization with connectivity uh, that in Pakistan goes back to the 1960s. Uh, somehow the fact that there is a geographical serendipity that has been bestowed upon Pakistan. And look, we can connect to China, we can connect to Central Asia, we can connect to India. India is a country with which Pakistan has very difficult relations, but we can connect to India, we can connect to the Gulf states, to Iran, to Afghanistan. So yeah, I mean, sort of more connectivity is a good thing. A port city is a good thing without bothering to ask that, look, you have two ports in Karachi, which are really just two hours away, which are not at full capacity. Do you actually need a third one? Those are details. Those, 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 uh, yeah, don't, <laughs> never mind those details. Wonderful. That, this is an absolutely fascinating story you tell, which is rooted, as you just discussed, in um, policy and economics, but also in the individual lives of people in, in, in the Indus Delta and in Karachi as well, as you mentioned. Um, all right, just to finish off then, I wondered if you could just discuss what you're working on now. Um, where's your research going? What can we look forward to um, seeing from you uh, in the relatively near future? So I have my work in Central Asia, so that's happening on the side. But with regards to the Indus Delta, I think uh, I've been thinking about this. Uh, what what one thing would what one thing would really bring together a lot of the issues of coastal development, changing ecology that I'm interested in, and I think that perhaps another paper could look at changing property relations and uh, changing access to commons and communal fishing waters. So really I want to use that, I want to use property, property relations and commons uh, as the starting point and then, then build from there. Yeah, at this point in time, uh, I, haven't been, I haven't been out there for two years because of COVID-19 and, and I'm really, you know, very, very keen to go back. Uh, and, 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 and when I do, when I have an opportunity to, to, when I have an opportunity to do that, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll begin by, by thinking about property, thinking about uh, access to commons, and let's see where that takes us. Wonderful. I uh, really very much look, for, look forward to hearing more about that. And fingers crossed uh, the pandemic allows you to do that research um, Absolutely. very soon. Um, well, thank you, Professor Kara, um, for discussing your article with me and your wider research. Um, it really has been a pleasure. Uh, and as it was in the final correspondence that saw your, in the final stages of production for your article. Um, also want to thank um, Rene Mandeville, who by the time you are listening to this will have edited and produced the recording. Uh, and thank you also to, the list, to you, the listeners. Uh, and once again, my name is Philip Gooding and you have been listening to the Indian Ocean World podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you, it's a pleasure. The Indian Ocean World podcast would like to acknowledge the generous support of the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. This podcast series is part of the SSHRC-funded partnership project Appraising Risk Past and Present, interrogating historical data to enhance understanding of environmental crises in the Indian Ocean world.